Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The Lord is near. Rejoice in the promise of Christ's coming. Let us worship God this day. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, King of glory, whose love is eternal, you are worthy at all times to receive adoration, praise, and blessing. And we praise you now for sending your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for whom we wait. So be pleased to come and be present with us now by the Holy Spirit, to whom along with you, O Father, and the Son, be honor and dominion now and forever, and who we praise, one God in three persons. Amen. Our first hymn is number 196, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus.
Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Let us then turn away from sin and turn to Christ, confessing our sins in penitence and faith. Let us pray. Almighty God, our sovereign Lord, you yourself have made us, you have supplied our daily needs, and most of all have come to us in grace and mercy while we lived in sin and fear and darkness. We have been a people of no faith, neglecting obedience to your commands, knowing what is right and yet doing what is wrong, not believing that you are our God and we your creatures, and not believing that Christ could become one of us and still be God. Forgive us our sin and unbelief as Christ came into this world asleep in its sin and as the light of your salvation awakened it, come and awaken faith in us so that we might do everything through faith in Jesus Christ and thus receive all things with thanksgiving and walk in newness of life. Through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. When the time had fully come, when God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption of sins, he came as our Savior. People of God, I declare to you that all those who have faith in this one, this Jesus Christ, and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And we rejoice in the good news of the gospel and say together, praise be to God. Saints of the living God, the Apostle Peter in his second letter tells the church to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. The Christian life is a life of restraint. It is not a life of just doing whatever we please, which does tend to be the life in, in our culture. But the Christian life is not that way. We all have sinful impulses that need to be restrained, such as anger that erupts or gossip, selfishness, strife, jealousy, licentiousness, slander, and on it goes. And these are things that the apostles mentioned to the churches in Scripture and also that we deal with today. In our society today, among other destructive behaviors, people freely indulge in sexual immorality, arrogance, and degrading others. Christ gives us grace for self-control today. I've been thinking and reflecting a lot on this call to obedience and just thinking about how self-control has just come apart in our society where people just, just explode and if they're upset about something, they just take it out on the other person instead of trying to, to hold that back and control it. And that's happening in our culture, but it's easy for that to slip into our lives as the church and um, in our Christian lives. Living in an autonomous, individualistic culture, we might hear the self in self-control, and we think that self-control is something that we have to do on our own. And I think that's what perhaps people have given up trying to do that. In our culture, they're seeking pleasure, and they've given up on just trying to exercise the willpower to control themselves because it's hard, and at the end of the day, they can't quite do it. But it's not that way for us who are in Christ. It's not based on 
our self accomplishing this. The virtue of self-control is something that grows in us as we participate in the community of believers. It's something where the Holy Spirit is developing that in us as we are in the church among Christ's people and, and receiving the sacraments, the ministry, the word. The fellowship of Christ's people helps us turn away from indulging our sinful passions. The virtue of restraining your sinful passions is not something that you do by yourself. And so Christ draws us together into Christian fellowship. Christ gives you grace within the church to have self-control. People of Christ pursue the virtue of self-control in the church. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ. And let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 58, O Splendor of God's Glory Bright. Heavenly Father, your favor towards us is most wonderful. It's called grace, 
and it's your favor inclined to us for our salvation in Jesus Christ. You've looked upon us in our guilt and our captivity to sin and death, and you've liberated us in Christ. You've seen our weakness and helplessness, and you've sent your eternal Son to save us. You have not overlooked us or ignored us, but you have comforted us with the salvation of Christ. And you continue to keep our hearts and minds set upon Christ by your grace, your ongoing grace. And so now, with that grace, by the work of your Holy Spirit, hear our prayers for the church and for this world. We pray that the church, the whole company of your saints, would rejoice that you have revealed the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let us never get tired of that wonderful revelation and fulfillment of your promise in him. Help the church to understand the significance of your goodness to us and the grandeur and magnitude of your grace. And despite all the conflict and the trouble and the confusion that the church endures this day, may it not succumb to sin and unbelief. But by your favor, be firm of faith and confident in Christ. Gracious Father, we cry out for our brothers and sisters who suffer mistreatment for the sake of Christ, whether that's harsh words or physical abuse or unfairness or imprisonment or even death. We remember those Christians and churches who are in North Korea, Syria, Iran, Cuba, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, Eritrea, Nigeria, Mexico, and even where we live. And we remember the Christians. We also just pray for the people in those lands where life is harsh. May they hear the word of Scripture that those who share in Christ's sufferings also will share in his triumph and glory. And we pray you would give them faith, and if they are Christians, that faith would, be, would persevere. We pray that our suffering fellow Christians would learn obedience and entrust themselves to you. Hear our prayers. O Lord, bless the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to mature in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Keep our church from being sidetracked or unreflective about the culture in which we live. Bless the ministers of our churches to lead in the way of the ministry of Christ. Help them so to order their time that they may carefully study the scriptures and preach and teach the message of your salvation. And we pray for Jonathan Cruz, the pastor at Community Church in Kalamazoo, and John Ferguson, the pastor at Covenant OPC in uh, Kamoka, Ontario, for Doug Bilsma and Living Hope Church in Ontario, and the other ministers and congregations of our presbytery. We pray for them. We also pray for our missionaries, Mark Richline and his family in Uruguay, and Mike McCabe with his family in China. Hear our prayers for these. We offer prayers for those in our world who are fearful and in need of food and shelter, the refugees who have had to flee their homes and seek justice for their family members who have been murdered, and those suffering from violence in our own country. We ask you, O Father, to bring peace and order, the peace of the gospel, that you would bring aid to them and good social uh, order and justice. Hear our prayers. For Providence Church, we pray, by your spirit, give us your grace that we might have employment and food enough, 
healing for our body and soul, contentment of heart, joy of life, gratitude for the many things you've given us, confidence in your care for us in Jesus Christ. And to this end, we pray for Frida and Eduardo, for Leah, Jeff and Linda, for Fawn and Bob, for those who will be traveling soon. And we also remember our friends for Becky and Karen, Mrs. Mesner, Angie, Phil, Tom, Bob, Dominique, and others we name to you in silence. O God, grant us wisdom and unity here at Providence, and we pray that we might meet more people and they would join us with faith in Christ. To you we pray, O Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. seated. Uh, As we come now to the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us first prepare our hearts and minds to receive this God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this time together, we pray that you would open our ears and minds to receive your word. Uh, Help us to receive them with humble hearts, teachable hearts, that in hearing your word, that we would be built up, that we would be strengthened and encouraged, 
that we would hear what we need to hear. For we do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 10. Listen now to God's word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Our Psalter response then comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, printed in the bulletin. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And his mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel. As he spoke to our fathers. Our epistle reading then comes from James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. Again, God's word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience. 
brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have remained, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And then finally, our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the spaces of places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The word of the Lord. Our Psalter response this morning is also a scripture lesson for us. Uh, It was the Psalter, usually it's a psalm, but today it was um, Luke chapter 1. And we we use those as responses to what we've just heard, the kind of bridge between the Old Testament to the New Testament, the the, what God has said to Israel and then what we long for and what comes in Jesus Christ. so it, it functions that way for us, but it's also a scripture lesson, and no doubt that's true for all of our Psalter readings. It's Mary's song. The mother of Jesus rejoices after she hears the divine announcement that she will bear the Son of God. She sings out with joy, and her song is called the Magnificat. We heard the Benedictus a couple weeks ago, which was the song or psalm of um, Zechariah. But this one is the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And it's called that because of how it begins. My soul magnifies the Lord. The song is modeled on Israel's psalms. If you notice, it wasn't like modern poetry. It wasn't like our modern songs. It's not modeled on that, which is sort of anachronistic. It's it's silly. It's modeled on Israel's psalms. And the Psalter is the collection of psalms we call psalms in the Bible. So when we talk about the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, there's the, we say the book of psalms. It's really a collection of psalms. And that's the Psalter. But the psalms in the Old Testament are not all in the Psalter. There are 150 in the Psalter, but there are other psalms. And you could even say there are psalms like Mary's song in the New Testament. So the psalms extend beyond the collection of psalms in the Old Testament. Mary's song uses the form of the psalms, and it even quotes from some of the psalms, but it's set in the context of the coming of Jesus Christ. So it begins... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
Listen to another psalm in the Old Testament prayed by Hannah, the mother of Samuel. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. It sounds very similar, doesn't it? Hannah was the lowly wife of Elkanah. Her husband loved her very much, but she had no children. And Elkanah had another wife named Penania, who had ten children, and Penania mercilessly ridiculed Hannah for not having any children. So there were two wives. One had ten children, one had none, and the one with ten children ridiculed Hannah. You see, in those days, children were considered one of the greatest blessings that God could give. Hannah was treated with contempt and disgrace by Penania. In ancient Israel society, Hannah was slowly, was lowly, but she fervently prayed to God. So in, in the way the society saw her, she was among the lowest because she didn't have any children. And she never stopped trusting in God, and she continued to pray to God. And God heard her prayers, and she became pregnant. And this is why Hannah praised God. My soul exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. And even some of the lines, if I were to go on and talk more about Hannah's psalm or song in 1 Samuel, you would hear some of the lines in it that sound very much like what Mary sings in her psalm. So some scholars believe that the Magnificat was modeled in part on Hannah's psalm. And there's much similarity in their stories, the, the personal stories of Hannah and Mary, both of them um, not having children and, and then becoming pregnant. Of course, there are differences, but some of those main themes are parallel between the two. But the big difference is that the angel announced to Mary that she bears the Son of the Most High, who will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's, that's a huge difference, because that wasn't Samuel. Hannah's psalm of great joy is in the context of the lowly woman who gives birth to one of the great prophets of Israel. Mary's psalm of great joy is in the context of the lowly woman who gives birth to God's son, the Messiah of the world. And there's a huge difference between the two. Mary's psalm draws on Hannah's psalm and other psalms in the Old Testament, like Psalm 136. In verse 48 of the Magnificat, Mary's psalm, she says, For he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. And then in Psalm 136, it's a psalm that gives thanks to God for his mighty acts to Israel. And in verse 23 of Psalm 136, it says, It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. So you, you see, you can hear that being picked up by Mary, that language picked up in her song. From, uh, she picks it up, uh, uses language from Psalm 136. But the context for Mary's song is God remembered her low estate by conceiving in her womb the Savior Jesus Christ. So again, Mary's song stands out and it is about God doing something so much bigger and greater. Mary's great joy is God's mighty act of Jesus Christ. Now Mary's song tells us this morning that God looks upon the lowly. She rejoices that God regarded her low estate. Mary is talking about God looking upon her in a caring way. God did not look upon her with a cold eye, like the eye of a camera that cares nothing about what it sees. It could see someone being beaten, and it doesn't care. The eye of the camera just records the images God did not regard Mary in her lowliness with a cold eye. 
God did not look upon lowly Mary with an eye of disgust, like Scrooge looked upon the poor in Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol, where he said, let them perish and decrease the surplus population. God did not look upon Mary with contempt. God did not pretend to overlook lowly Mary, like drivers in their cars who stare straight ahead at a red light, rather than look at a homeless woman begging for money at the corner. God did not turn his gaze away from Mary in her lowliness. God looked upon lowly Mary with mercy. And it was not just Mary. God has always looked upon the lowly with loving care. He looked upon the lowly people of Israel when they were captives in Egypt. The Lord called Moses at the burning bush and he said to Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. God saw their lowly position. The Egyptians considered the Hebrews inferior slaves, beasts of burden who could do the heavy lifting for their construction projects. God saw their, the Hebrews' powerlessness and weakness in Egyptian society. And God looked upon lowly Israel with mercy. Later, God looked upon the exiles in Babylon, the Jews who were carried away to Babylon. They were prisoners of war. They were tormented and mocked. One of the Psalms, another Psalm 137, talks about what their, what their captors said to them. And God saw it. And God saw the Jews who were at the bottom of Babylonian society. And God looked upon the lowliness of the early Christians, like the church to whom Luke was writing. Luke's gospel was for a church community. And he's writing, and he brings these themes are very, would have been just, just really reached out and hit them very strongly because they were very lowly people in those societies. The early Christians were ostracized in Jewish society and Roman society. It's sort of like a, a double whammy. Many of them were slaves who did not have the rights of Roman citizenship. They were also cut off from Jewish citizenship. The Jews considered them heretics, and the Romans, once they figured out that following Christ was not the same as Judaism, they considered the Christian social destabilizers and deviants. Christians were assaulted, they were blamed for destructive events like the huge fire in Rome, and they were used for sport at the arenas. God saw the Christians who were little more than prey. God saw the lowly status of men and women uh, of women, I'm sorry, women and children in ancient societies. Mary even acknowledges her low estate in her song, and let's not forget, it's Mary, a woman. Verse 48, God has acknowledged the low estate of his handmaiden. His, her low estate functioned on several levels. She was poor, she was a Jew, and she was a woman. Women were valued less than men. In Jewish society, some rabbis taught that women could be divorced for the slightest error. Their husbands could divorce them for the slightest error, like burning a meal. Women were often blamed if a man took advantage of them. It wasn't the man's fault, it was the woman's fault. Men were considered superior to women. And children were even lower in the social strata of the ancient world, especially if they were not the firstborn son. Obviously, a woman would not be the firstborn son, but the other siblings might not be firstborn either. Children were often treated as disposable. They were, they were to stay out of the way of the adults unless they were invited to join the adults. And in Rome, the father of the house had the right, there was a law that allowed the father, the head of the house, to cast a child out. 
Many nations considered those from other nations as lower than their own nation. The Greeks believed their civilization was superior to other civilizations. The Romans believed that if you were not Roman, you were second class or you had no class. The Jews believed that if you're not Jewish, you were not much. These first century social divisions of greatness and lowliness, they're addressed in the Gospels like Paul in, in, in uh, Galatians talks about how in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free. Those aren't ju- just interesting <clears throat> uh, groups he's talking about. They were the actual social divisions in, in the culture in, this, in, the, in the ancient days. And so uh, they're addressed um, and, and, and picked up in the epistles. God sees the lowly, lowly in this world and God, re- uh, I'm sorry, God sees the lowly in this world and Mary rejoices because of that. We are to follow God's gaze and look upon the lowly. Have you, ever, have you ever been on a sidewalk or out on a walk and you drew near to someone and they're staring, you know, maybe up in the sky, they're just staring. Or they're staring down a side road and they're just, just looking down that way. And what do you do? It's very hard to resist this. You want to look and see what they're looking at. Your eyes are drawn to what he or she is looking at, and how much more is it with God? When we find out what he's looking at with care, then our eyes are to follow his. God sees all the lowly of this world. Democracy prides itself on making everyone equally important, but the truth of the matter is that there are still the lowly in our democratic society. Don't be fooled by thinking just because we all theoretically, uh, politically have the same rights, we're all uh, equal, our constitution sets that out. Nevertheless, there still are the lowly in our society. And there may be some who do treat certain groups of the lowly um, as if they're not lowly, but there are many others who do treat them as lowly. So here are some of the lowly in our society. The poor are lowly. And this is the way it's been in every society throughout history. The poor always seem to end up in the low side. That they lack the means for power and money and political clout and organization. Occasionally, a poor person will find a pro bono lawyer, a lawyer who will work for no payment, and bring a lawsuit for wrongs done to her or him. Or there will be activists who start a campaign to help some of the poor in a city or across the nation. And the help lasts for a time, and then it dissipates, and the poor are still there. Or it wasn't the poor that these activists and others were trying to help. There are other kinds of poor. The poor are there. Look at them. And be mindful of how you look at them. With a cold eye, with an eye of disgust, with an eye that looks away, look at the poor with loving concern. And drug addicts are lowly. For many reasons, they have fallen into captivity to some kind of drug. And no doubt, they have made bad choices. But however it happened, their addiction has taken on a life of its own, and they've fallen low. Often, they fall so low that they're consumed by their hunger for the drug. God looks upon them with their shakes and their vomit and their desperate attempts to get more drugs. In our society, they can get rehab, they can get counseling, they can get other kinds of help, but we have not solved the drug crisis. The drug addicts are still there. Look at them. Babies are lowly. I saw my new granddaughter during Thanksgiving. They came up, Hannah and her family came up um, to visit us. 
the granddaughter names Tally, Talitha, Tally. And as I held her and looked at her, I was struck with how helpless or dependent she is. But in our society, babies are even more lowly. They're not just looked at as helpless and dependent. They're even more lowly than that. There's a growing idea that babies are less than older people because they cannot reason and exercise their will as much, and so they're considered not persons. They're human beings but not persons because they can't exercise their reason as much as an older person or their wills as much as an older person. And sometimes they're considered an inconvenience or an obstacle that prevents the mother and father from living their own lives. And babies are even considered harmful for our world. There was a story out two weeks ago about a mother who frets that her own daughter is bad for the earth. With her narrow, with the mother's narrow focus on the climate, this mother sees babies as little climate bombs that emit billions of carbon emissions warming the planet every year. That's the way she talks about babies. Babies are lowly. Look at them. Those with mental illness are lowly. Oftentimes their illness expresses itself in strange behaviors. They do not always act like mainstream society. Sometimes they don't talk like mainstream society. Many require some kind of medication to help them function, and if they're out on their own, they probably don't get their meds like they should. It's common for families to disown them. They don't know what to do. They're overwhelmed, so they can't manage them. And the mentally ill have been targets for bullies and thugs because they have a hard time defending themselves. People with mental illness are there. Look at them. Now, there are other kinds of lowly people in our society, but I'll mention one more, Christians. Now, I'm not talking about Christians who go along with the society and its pleasure-seeking morality and unbelief. I'm talking about Christians who stand with the historic Christian church and its moral teaching and its faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a very odd place to be right now in our society. It's an odd place to be for Christians. Once Christians were dominant in American society, whether that was for good or for bad, they were dominant. Now Christians are called out more and more by those who are not Christians. Carl Truman, Carl Truman likens it to suffocation. The anti-Christian aggression in our society cannot outlaw Christianity, so it's trying to incapacitate the church by not allowing it to function in society. The anti-Christian aggressors are trying to suffocate the church. While once the Christian church was powerful and mighty in this nation, now it is powerless and weak. We have become lowly. Look upon the church, look upon your fellow Christians. Look upon the lowly with loving care. God acts for the lowly, and that is why Mary rejoices. The Magnificat is loaded with references to God exalting the lowly. Mary magnifies the Lord. My soul does magnify the Lord. And the Lord magnifies the lowly. That's all coming out in this psalm. God looked upon the humble estate of Mary, and from then on she was blessed. Verse 48. Verse 52 straight out says God exalts those of humble estate. Verse 53 says he has filled the hungry who would be lowly with good things. Verse 54 says he has helped his servant Israel. But the key point in this is the reversal of the lowly and the mighty. Mary does not only sing of the lowly being exalted, she also sings of the mighty being made low. 
Verses 52 and 53 are the clutch of Mary's song. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It's an astonishing reversal. The reversal of the mighty and the lowly is a major theme in the Gospel of Luke. It shows up, it's very dominant, it's very very uh, pointed in Mary's song, but it continues on in the Gospel of Luke. It's a major theme in the Gospel of Luke. It comes up in the story of Jesus' birth with Mary's song, and it comes up again in Jesus' teaching for his disciples on the Sermon on the Plain or in the Coastland in Luke chapter 6. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus begins with blessings. In Luke 6, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then Jesus reverses it. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus also tells a parable that shows the reversal of the lowly and the mighty, and it's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. I considered using this for the uh, Gospel reading this morning. I went with the other text, and it it ties in as well. But there is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. It's in Luke chapter 16. The rich man was clothed in expensive clothes, and he feasted sumptuously every day. Can you imagine having a sumptuous meal every day, and you're dressed in your finery? You have your servants coming and serving you, and you're just eating well. He's probably fat, quite frankly. It doesn't say that. But that was a sign of living well. Lazarus was a poor man who was covered with sores that itched terribly. And he lay beside the gate of the rich man, hoping to eat some of the scraps from the rich man's table that were thrown out in the trash. Jesus tells the parable with an astonishing reversal in it. Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. This is a very Jewish way of talking. To the bosom of Abraham, which was a Jewish way of saying that he went to be in the blessing and fullness of God. The rich man died and ended up in Hades, a place of torment and anguish. The rich man cried out to Abraham for relief. But Abraham said to the rich man, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. You hear? You hear the reversal, the flip, the switch, turning things upside down? The parable is about the reversal of the mighty in this world and the lowly. But when will it happen, this reversal? Well, the parable indicates that it'll, it will be in the eschaton, which is a, a word that gets used a lot by scholars, I guess. The eschaton, the final age when it comes, in the new heavens, the new earth, after the final judgment of God. And that's sort of the indication in the parable because Lazarus dies, the rich man dies, Lazarus goes to be with Abraham, uh, the rich man goes to Hades, and so it seems to be after, uh, later. In this new, new age, God will, will reverse things. And yet, Mary sings that it has begun. God had exalted Mary. She wasn't singing about how he will exalt me, or maybe that's a little bit in there, but there's also, he has exalted me. Verse 49, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, has done great things for me. In some churches, Mary is honored and celebrated, 
After all, God chose her to bear the Christ child, the Holy Son of God. She's called blessed, blessed Mary. But lest we set Mary on a pedestal, this is all because of God's reversal. It's kind of dawned on me when I was studying it, you know, that Mary gets this privileged position is blessed, but it really is, is talking much more about God's reversal. Mary is blessed because God sees the lowly and exalts the lowing. Mary is an example of that. Now, perhaps she's a prime example because she carried the Christ child, but she's an example nonetheless of the lowly being raised up and the mighty being brought down. The reversal of the lowly and the mighty had begun for Mary. And in verses 51 and 52 of the Magnificat, she sings that God's reversal has begun in this world in general. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He's done this. The reversal of the lowly and the exalted has begun with the coming of Jesus Christ. He's the one who, though he was equal with God, humbled himself and became a servant, as the Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church. He became a servant in order to lift up the lowly and humble the mighty. The advent of Jesus Christ in this world is the advent of the reversal of the lowly and the exalted. God's salvation in Jesus Christ exalts the lowly who have faith in him. Jesus does not just create a new condition of lifting up the lowly and putting down the mighty. He is not a mere spark of revolution in this world that gave us the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and all those other revolutions for democracy or somehow trying to level the playing field. Somehow in those revolutions, one group of the mighty takes over for the old group of the mighty, and there still are the lowly. Jesus Christ becomes one of the lowly, And through faith in him, we become lowly. And he lifts up all of us through his death and resurrection so that we are all exalted. All Christians, regardless of their status in this world, are exalted in Christ. All Christians are made low in Christ and exalted in Christ. He exalts those of low degree. We in the church are to bear witness to God's great reversal in Jesus Christ. To be sure, we're looking forward to that eschaton, to that final day when the governments and the powers in this world are brought down to their final uh, position um, in the end. We're looking forward to that, and we long for that and call out for that. But it has begun with Jesus Christ, and it is being evidenced in the church. We are to bear witness to God's great reversal in Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, at times the church has lacked that witness. In the past, Protestant churches took on different social and economic distinctions. So in the main, in the past, let's say 50 to 100 years ago, the Episcopal churches were known for being comprised of wealthy business owners. If you wanted to find the rich in a town where most people were going to church, you would probably find them at the Episcopal church. Presbyterian churches were predominantly comprised of middle-income business managers, So the managers of the businesses tended to go to the Presbyterian churches. And then um, those who were, uh, the the Baptist churches were known for being comprised of those with lower income who worked in factories in the service sector. Now there were exceptions, of course. There were a few rich people in the Presbyterian churches. There were a few rich Baptists, etc. There were some lower-income people who came to the Presbyterian church. There were exceptions, but a clear pattern emerged 
I'm not the one who came up with this. They did some studies. They looked at the constitution of these churches, and they saw this pattern emerge. That's how the church sorted itself out in this country 50 to 100 years ago. Now, in the last few years, all of that is changing. Today, more and more, the movers and shakers in society, the wealthy, the ones with social and political power, they don't want to be associated with the church unless they consider the church useful for their purposes. Now, again, there are exceptions to this, but in the main, it does not look good on one's resume to be a member of a Christian church, especially a Christian church that holds to Orthodox Christian faith and teaching. The churches that seek to follow Christ more than our culture are lowly in our society, and the lowly are coming to those churches, not the rich and the powerful. When we Christians look upon the lowly with loving care, we're bearing witness to God's great reversal in Jesus Christ. It's not that we turn our backs on the mighty in our society, but they will have to be made lowly in Jesus Christ, and they tend to resist that. When we Christians see the lowly and give aid to them, then we are bearing witness to God's reversal in Jesus Christ. When the lowly come to church and we welcome them and point them to Christ, then we are bearing witness to God exalting the lowly in Christ. So go out and find the lowly. As Jesus says in our gospel lesson, go out quickly to the streets and the lands of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. This is what God is doing in this world through Jesus Christ. He's filling the church with the lowly. May we be faithful witnesses like Mary that he puts down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of low degree. Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins and entranced by the world, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily deliver and help us as we bear witness to Jesus Christ through whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 193, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Christ, the Holy Supper that we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, of communion, and of hope. All those different points of view are in this, and the realities of those different um, tenses are in this supper. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law even to the bitter and shameful end and death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation 
that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by Him. So that reality is present in this meal. We come to have communion with the same Christ who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the breaking of the bread, He makes Himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us into eternal life. In the cup of blessing, He comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. We come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and a foretaste of the feast of love of which we shall partake when his kingdom has fully come, when with unveiled face we shall behold him, made like him unto glory. Since by his death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ has obtained for us the life-giving spirit who unites us all in one body, we are exhorted to receive this supper in faith, and love, mindful not only of Christ's sacrifice, but also of the communion of saints and our mutual obligations to one another as co-members of Christ's body and church. It is my privilege to invite all who have been baptized, who publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members in good standing of a Christian church to come to this, our Lord's table. If you have not been baptized, if you have not professed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are not in good standing with the Christian church, we are glad you're here, but ask you to refrain from participating in the sacrament until such time that those three ways that God has taught us in Scripture to be identified with His people are true for you. Please join me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give you thanks and praise. It is indeed right and good to give you thanks and praise Almighty God, our everlasting Father, through Jesus Christ your Son. Through the words of the prophets, you promised the Redeemer and gave hope for the day when the people who walk in darkness would see a great light. For you sent your Son to us, who humbled himself and came among us in human flesh. He fulfilled the plan you formed before the foundation of the world to open for us the way of salvation. Confident that your promise will be fulfilled, we now watch for the day when Christ our Lord will come again in glory. And we join our voices here at this table with that host of heaven, those who have gone on before us from the church here on earth, and those who reside in heaven, the heavenly host, the angels, all together, praising you and proclaiming, and we join their song, forever praising you, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory be to you, O Lord Most High. All glory be to you, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of your tender mercy did give your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer upon the cross for our redemption, and who made there by his once offering of himself a full and perfect and sufficient sacrifice, an offering and satisfaction for the sin of the world, and did institute in his holy gospel and command us to continue a perpetual celebration of this his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, O merciful Father, we most humbly ask you and grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we receiving these, your creatures of bread and the cup, according to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, 
may by faith be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be unto you, O Father Almighty, world without end. And we raise our thanksgiving to you and say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. 
I am the bread of life. Take and eat this bread, remembering Christ's body given for you, and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us bow our heads in prayer. We give you thanks, O Lord, for these, your heavenly gifts, the meal at this table. Kindle in us the fire of your spirit that we may faithfully be witnesses of your salvation. And when our Savior Christ shall come again, we may shine as light before his face, who lives and reigns now and forever. Amen. Final hymns number 102, All Glory Be to Thee Most High.
The Lord make your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Please be seated, and a very good morning to you all. Um, well, uh, in addition to the, uh, the things listed here, since we have them up front already, and uh, all the old movies, you often see someone yell, is there a doctor in the audience? And we do have, not the medical doctor, but we do have a new doctor among us, so congratulations to Stephen Cohen, who, uh, do you want to give us the 30-second version of... Your transition from what you woke up yesterday to uh, yeah. That's... <laughs> and the magic happens. So um, anyway, congratulations, uh, Stephen, and hopefully you were not paying a punch into the part of the sermon that. Uh, advises you to now move up in the ranks of denominations based on your elevated social status. Um, we also, uh, odd though it may seem, uh, is uh, I believe two weeks from right now is Christmas morning, so we are almost there. And in that, uh, on that note, are we still looking for volunteers to yes. read and or lead music? Yeah. Oh, I have a list here, so I'm starting to fill it out. But if you'd like to read, let, let us know. It'll be 6 o'clock Christmas Eve. And then if you'd like to lead, uh, accompany us in singing, um, Stephen's going to be sort of the default. But if there are others who want to do that, then just let me know, and uh, you can bring in your instrument, your voice, to help lead us in the singing. So we're happy to have that. But see me um, afterwards. We only have two more weeks to get this done, so please talk to me. Um, you can uh, reference Life Together for a lot of the announcements, but uh, we continue to encourage you to uh, consider, consider the lowly this time of year in our donations to the uh, food pantry um, and uh, cleaning supplies and decor items. And I think uh, Denine sent out an email as far as things that the AAFC is looking for. So um, consider on your, your Christmas shopping trips uh, picking up those things. Yes? And that is uh, teachers of the English language or teachers of something else? Okay. So uh, repeating for those of you um, who are worshiping with us at home, um, uh, Barb Hannum passed on. Uh, we, we sent a, a trunk full of 
um, goods and donations to the Arab American Friendship Center, and they were uh, delighted to receive those um, and are also in the market if anybody is feeling inspired um, for some teachers uh, to help people learn English um, that I think, like just about every other aspect of society, uh, COVID affected them negatively in terms of um, their uh, volunteer staff. So, um, Anyway, so consider supporting in that way. Um, are there any other announcements from the floor? Yeah, I should add, we do have class today, the Luther Christmas book, so I'm leading that. And then um, the Thursday night Bible study is on break until mid-January, and then Friday uh, we go back to the jail. It'll be probably just me going back to the jail to, uh, lead, a, to lead a evangelistic worship with prisoners. So please keep that in mind. And it is, it's different for us. Um, we're going to a new area, different area. It's, it's uh, deep in the bowels of the jail. <laughs> At least before, I, I can, you can see outside in the light. And it, that's the way it seems to me, and I'm sure it seems that way to them as well. So uh, please remember them in your prayers and what we're doing Friday. Yes, Mrs. Roberts. Okay. All right. Uh, yes. Can, for for those at home, continued prayers requested for uh, the Guzmans. Um, Eduardo's in in some pain this morning. Um, and as a final note, it is uh, Elder Kelly's uh, birthday today. He is worshiping with his son uh, as opposed to coming here. So in a very, about a three-second uh, elders meeting um, after the service there, we agreed that everyone should uh, send Mr. Kelly a novelty meme to remind him how old he is. Um, so if you're willing to do that, we'd, we'd appreciate it. I'm sure he would too. So, And happy birthday, George, if you're watching. Uh, We will be uh, having class in a little bit, so let's enjoy some fellowship, and you are dismissed.